BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with bare premium plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Sliding into the midterms, we're seeing that more people are voting by mail, and now you can track your ballot in about half of states. The envelopes that carry your mail-in ballot have a number associated with them that corresponds to an individual voter, and that number is used by companies like Ballot Tracks and Ballot Scout to track your vote. For more on how you can track your mail-in ballots every move, we'll speak to Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at The Washington Post. Right now, if you vote by mail or by drop-off, there's a little bit of mystery involved in it, right? Like, did my ballot get lost in the mail? Did I send it off in time? Did it get opened? Did my vote actually count? And a lot of Americans vote by mail now. I mean, everybody in California, as one example, on the largest state gets a mail-in ballot automatically. So the good news is that it started actually because of the pandemic. States and the counties that run local elections, that run elections locally, I should say, started investing in technology. That Basically, it's the same stuff that's used by UPS packages and other kinds of things that you might want to track to really kind of build in some assurance for people who are voting by mail and also, frankly, accountability for local officials to make sure that they are opening all these ballots and also for the post office because, you know, yeah, they sometimes do lose ballots. This does happen. It actually happened to my own dad. He sent in his, his ballot in Massachusetts, never got registered. He checked in. Oh, yeah, they had lost it. So they sent him another one. So the way it works is it's pretty simple. The problem is there's not one single way to do it in the U.S. because elections are run locally. So to get started, you're going to have to go to your county, your local election office and check to see like, hey, do you have some ballot tracking tech? It's usually something you got to sign up for. It's separate from you know registering to vote, separate from even asking for an absentee or mail-in ballot. But once you have it, it should be pretty simple. There's a couple of systems that are used by lots of places. One's called Ballot Tracks. Another one's called Ballot Scout. And basically, you just go in, you type in your your name, your birth date, and usually your zip code, something like that. Type in a little bit of information, your phone number, your email, and then you start getting messages. They'll tell you when your ballot's on the way. They'll tell you when your ballot's been counted and also, uh, you know, when they've opened it and and, and received it. And there's a number of states. We won't go through all of them because there's a bunch to name, but you can check uh, out Jeffrey's column or you can, as you mentioned, just go to your own state or your own county and see if they offer these types of services. But the important thing to note of how it works too, because obviously people are concerned with privacy and all that. Mm -hmm. 
So the way it works is that the envelopes that contain our mail-in ballots, they have a number associated with them, a number associated with each individual voter. And that's what they're tracking, the envelope number, not your actual ballot. Nobody sees the ballot. Nobody sees who you voted for, all that stuff. And that's how it's these codes that provide these uh, uh, are available to these ballot tracking services. Not only does your vote remain completely private, but also this does not give the government some new way to track you. I know that's a concern to some people. The government already knows who does and does not vote. (laughs) In some places, actually, that is a matter of public record. There's databases you can go in and look that up. All this does is kind of give you power over this data. You give you an ability to kind of like pull it up and um, follow your own ballot. Now, what do we uh, know as least about, I don't know, any cybersecurity issues, anything like that, other information getting lost uh, up in the mix? The good news is, as we were just saying, the data that's involved here isn't particularly valuable. It's a matter of public record in lots of places. So it's not a really high profile target for potential hackers like voting machines or other kinds of systems. The two companies that you know run the tech in lots of places I spoke to, neither of them have been breached. Um, you know, and they're investing in all this cyber technology. That said, like, look, anytime you get a message via text or email that claims to be from the government about your, the election, about democracy, you should be a little skeptical for it. And if you didn't sign up for this, we don't remember signing up for it, definitely call your local county office before you click on any links or do anything. Right. We all need to be kind of in high awareness level about that. But so far, it's been pretty good for them. And as you lead up into election day anyways, I mean, people are inundated with text messages, you know, whether it's a poll for this or, you know, vote for so-and-so. I'm sure everybody out there listening right now has gotten a number of text messages with election-related materials there. And if you if you live in a county or state that doesn't allow this ballot tracking, there are a couple of other things, I guess, that you can do. It's not really the same, but you made mention in here, USPS informed delivery. Now, how does that work? Yeah, this is a service that uh, the post office offers for free to anybody with an address that receives mail. Just go find, go on Google, find an informed delivery, and they'll send you an email every day with information about all the mail that's coming into you. So at least you can track it that way. And so overall, I mean, are the states that have participated in this, they're seeing some good success with it all and everybody's kind of happy with the way it's been working out so far? I think so. The biggest problem so far is actually, frankly, just people don't know it exists. And there are some forces in some states where people are really against the idea of mail-in voting or against the idea of drop boxes where there's been spreading some, frankly, misinformation about this technology or the risks that it might bring to your privacy or whatnot. So that's been, I think, a hindrance as well. But I think most of the people who've tried it are like, this is so simple. We track everything else in our lives. Why not give us the power to track our balance? Right. If Amazon can do it, we should at least be able to do it with this. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. The holiday shopping season is going to start heating up very soon, but be sure to check out retailers' return policies. Over the pandemic, shoppers have become accustomed to very generous return and shipping policies, but that's all changing. Major retailers are shortening their return windows and even adding restocking fees in some cases. Returns have increased costs to the companies to the tune of $761 billion. For more on why it's getting harder to return unwanted items, we'll speak to Rachel Wolf, Consumer Trends reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Retailers were really wanting to ensure that people kept spending money through the pandemic, even when they couldn't physically come into stores. And so they made it super, super easy to return things. And they encouraged what's known as bracket buying, which is when you order multiple sizes, colors, styles of a shirt, say that you want, try them all on at home. 
only choose the one or none that you like. And what this did was it created this massive returns problem because it was costing retailers money, you know, to ship everything to you, to pay to ship it back. And then when they finally got the items returned to them, it was possible that they were no longer in season. They couldn't necessarily sell them again. So it was costing them billions. It has been costing them billions of dollars and creating all of this waste. So it's become a really huge issue. Yeah. I mean, the standard, right, was free shipping. And in a lot of cases, free return shipping for all this stuff. So that was the thing. I mean, there's, I know people would say, oh, I'm not even going to buy anything if they don't ship it to me for free. So that was the standard that they were setting. So the question is, you know, how many returns? So uh, retailers say they expect their customers to send back about 17% of the total merchandise they purchased from last year, that totaled up to $761 billion. That is so much. And a lot of it, they say, is fraud. I mean, it's not even legitimate totally purposes that they're worried about. It. Yeah. So tell us about that. I mean, how is that working out, that part? Fraud includes things like returning an item that you bought with the intent to maybe wear it a couple of times and then not take the tag off, send it back afterwards, returning shoplifted merchandise. So that's become a pretty sizable issue, too, is that people are kind of misusing these laxed return policies. What are we looking at as far as uh, some of these shortened windows for returns? Like, every, you know, in my head, I just feel like there was always a 90-day return policy. I know that's been shortened uh, quite a bit now. So, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of retailers did move to that 90-day super generous window. But 90 days can be the whole life cycle of a seasonal, especially seasonal fashion items. And so a lot of retailers are shortening from 90 days to maybe 30. And sometimes it's not 30 days from when you get the item, it's 30 days from when the item leaves the warehouse. So it could be even (laughs) less than 30 days. And, you know, not all retailers are being (laughs) super open and they're not necessarily advertising of the changes. And so some of the consumers I spoke to got themselves in a bit of a jam when they went to return an item, didn't realize that the return window had been shortened and then could not take it back, couldn't get their money back. So the people I spoke to were not too pleased. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and this is a big problem, right? We had already done some stories where a lot of these retailers have too much stuff, too many things in stock that they can't get rid of. And now you pile this on. Yeah. Now you pile this on. And when they're discounting stuff too, is also the thing. If they're discounting stuff, electronics, home goods, apparel, whatever it may be, those are going to be the things that are especially hard to turn back. You did mention, you did mention some people were pretty angry about it. You spoke to a few consumers out there saying they feel like they might not even want to shop with some of these companies anymore. That's kind of the more disappointing thing is that they're just not being flexible with some of that. You know, I think that that's what what has people really frustrated is people feel like they've been good customers, you know, they are spending their money at these places and then to be stuck with clothes that don't fit or that doesn't look good. One consumer said that a short made her look like a clown and then she was stuck (laughs) with it and she was less upset about losing all the money than she was that you know, they just wouldn't work with her at all after she had shopped. And this, in this case, it was the gap. You know, she was like, I've been shopping here for decades and, you know, it just feels bad. And on top of these retailers shortening the windows for returns, adding restocking fees in some cases, they're also trying to implement new strategies to help people buy less of what they don't want in the first place, which is kind of funny. You know, so tell right. us about what they're trying to do with that. I mean, how do you get somebody to not make an impulse buy or, or something like that? You know, how, how are they helping out in that sense? You know, part of it is 
better imaging. So making sure that people have a better sense of what they're actually getting, better descriptions of sizes, and then bundling, especially with electronics, making sure that people have everything that they need to make a product work because they're more likely to send something back if they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to go out and now buy six additional things for another $100 after I just spent $600. So making sure that people have what they need for an item. There's also more companies are starting to use AR, augmented reality, so that you can try a pair of sunglasses on your face. You can see what a lamp looks like in your living room. And, you know, that hopefully gets a little bit ahead of just buying things only to try it and realize that it's not a fit. Rachel Wolf, Consumer Trends Report at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ready to bring some spring vibes indoors? Bare Premium Plus Paint is here to make it happen. And it's starting at only $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Picture your kitchen coming to life by adding a pop of blue with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. And let's not forget your living room. Picture it drenched in the lush, verdant tones of Amazon jungle, breathing new life into your space with every glance. Head into your bathroom and let the cool breeze of sea glass wash away all your stress. And when the morning sun peeks through your bedroom window, feel the warmth and comfort of a spring sunrise with shades like coral cloud and dark crimson. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with a durable finish that resists dirt and grime to last all season. And let your creativity bloom with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Finally for this week, commercial satellites could be the next big targets in space. Private networks that provide aid during wartime efforts could be under the crosshairs, as we are seeing with Ukraine and Russia. SpaceX's Starlink, which is providing internet to Ukraine after their networks were taken down, is coming under Russian scrutiny. This is prompting the Pentagon and others to think about establishing rules and norms for behavior in space. For more on this and news of a planet killer asteroid, we'll speak to Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios. One thing that has been particularly interesting and that's kind of driving a lot of this is the fact that Starlink is up and running. So uh, there are over 3,000 Starlink satellites in orbit right now. They are beaming internet to the ground for normal people, but they are also uh, essential to the war fighting effort in Ukraine after Russia cut off internet access to the country and Starlink sort of stepped in to fill the void. And what's interesting about that is that now like these privately held satellites are an essential component in a war effort. Um, and it's not necessarily being, you know, paid for by the U.S. government or, or anything like that, but you have these satellites that are helping Ukrainians fight the war, and you have Russia, on the other hand, that is, you know, targeting these satellites with cyber attacks, and even a foreign ministry official for the country sort of said, like, 
you know, these uh, satellites being used in wartime, even if they're commercial, could be considered legitimate targets for militaries. So it's it's a pretty interesting kind of Wild West situation that, that we're seeing develop here. And now a little bit on SpaceX's Starlink uh, you know, network of satellites. I mean, they do have a number of satellites up there. So let's say one gets shot down. It doesn't necessarily take down the whole network or anything like that. That's the thing. It's a really resilient system. So it's like one or even, you know, a, a handful of them. If they get taken out, it probably won't uh, damage the service very much. But it could really, you know, damage relations on Earth and also uh Problems and it could create a lot of problems in outer space just because of the space junk created by those kinds of destructive attacks. And when it comes to the U.S. military, and I mentioned earlier, you know, they're trying to create some type of norms for um, behavior in space. You know, shooting something down, you know, could be uh, a cause for greater conflict, things like that. They're, the Pentagon, they're, they're all starting to work on certain norms like this. Yeah, there have been a lot of folks in the background sort of working on these issues for years and years and years, but now they're finally kind of coming to the forefront because we're seeing this move from the realm of sort of hypothetical into practical. And it's interesting because we really don't have norms of behavior established when it comes to, you know, military engagement in, in space. Um, so actually creating those norms where you can point to something and say, hey, shooting down a satellite like that is not okay, creating debris is not okay. Um, that will go a long way toward establishing treaties and creating situations where you can point to behavior and say, that wasn't all right, here are sanctions, that kind of thing. I know the Pentagon obviously is working on this, but this is all going to be kind of the purview of the Space Force, right? The newly created branch of the military? Uh, it's also State Department. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of it is Space Force, some of it is State Department. It's really, the thing about space is it kind of stretches across departments effectively so you got a lot of different people involved in these negotiations yeah i mean that's going to be interesting how all of this uh progresses as we get more of these commercial satellites set in place now and yeah i mean they can be easy targets and then uh you know what happens from there um so we'll keep an eye out for that i did want to talk about uh since we were the last time one of the last times we spoke we were talking about the nasa dart mission which was the uh you know the thing that uh, we shot it into an asteroid moved it off its orbit and it was a very successful thing uh you know in case of an asteroid ever coming our way well uh, scientists have discovered a potential what they call quote unquote a planet killer asteroid uh, that's a mile long uh that could be within the orbit of earth although it's like really really far away but they have kind of identified a potential candidate that they call the planet killer yeah, so planet killer is sort of this this interesting term that's used for when an asteroid is of a certain size. So when you hit about the size of this particular asteroid that you're talking about, so about a mile, um, that's what's called a planet killer because the effects of the asteroid like hitting a planet would be felt across the planet, like across multiple continents. Um, but yeah, this asteroid it really doesn't pose a threat to Earth. Um, and if it did, it would be thousands, if not millions of years in the future. Uh, so it's nothing to, like, worry about right now. But it's right there. Now. But it's there. You know? It is there. It is there. That is true. And uh, the name, I think they also need a better name for it. It's called right now 2022 AP7. As you mentioned, it doesn't post a threat to us right now. But uh, tell us a little bit more about how they actually 
key in on these things. You know, if you're saying it's not uh, a really a big problem for thousands, maybe millions of years, uh, how how are they even identifying something like this? Yeah, so it's actually a really interesting sort of story. So this asteroid was discovered as part of this big survey that was being taken at twilight because one of the best ways to find asteroids that are usually lost in sort of the glare of the sun, which are the most dangerous because you can't see them, obviously, is by searching at twilight. And you really only have 10 minute, like two 10 minute windows um, in order to search for these. So it has taken a long time to find them. Um, and there are still probably a few of these large, you know, planet killer type asteroids out there somewhere. Um, but by and large, scientists think they've found most of them. And these twilight surveys are really how they're able to do it for these kinds of asteroids that are found in this type of orbit. Yeah, And, and I mean, there's, uh, you know, obviously a lot of things out in the, the entire universe, but, um, you know, we've never really found anything, obviously, that's really on a collision course with us. As I mentioned, we, we looked at that DART mission, and that was excess. It threw um, the orbit off of that thing by uh, just enough to, to really make an impact. But that thing was small. I think we said it was like the size of a washing machine or something like that. How big would something have to be uh, to move something like this uh, 2022 AP7 asteroid off its orbit? I mean, that's a good question. And I, I don't know that we have like a great answer for it yet. But because of DART, scientists are getting closer to having that kind of answer. Like the idea is basically they'll be able to scale up the technology they used for DART in order to throw something off of our path, if it is ever found, yeah. that's quite a bit bigger. So the whole point in the in this mission was to kind of figure out how to scale it up right. eventually. And, yeah, and they'll have to plan that, you know, well in advance. I think uh, the DART <laughs> mission was done like 11 months in advance. If it's something this huge, right, they'd have to uh, pl uh, really plan for that. So uh, just a lot of interesting stuff. I always love the space news. Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me as always. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.